infections continue to soar. And you've been listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to The Week on 3 with me, Noreen Mir. It's great to be back with you on this week's programme, bringing you the latest highlight on Radio 3. It's been an exciting week on 3 as we featured many of the authors from this year's Hong Kong Literary Festival and we also highlighted many of the charities that we're supporting for this year's Operation Santa Claus. And so on this week's show, I'd like to start with Thursday's 123 show where Michael O'Sullivan, who's a writer and academic based in Hong Kong and Ireland, he has published 15 books in the field of literature, philosophy and education studies and has recently published his first novel, Lockdown Lovers. Janice Wong got a chance to speak to him and she first asked him to give her a brief spoiler of the book. Yes, well this is a novel and it's it's set in Hong Kong and in Cork in Ireland and uh, it follows the course of the lives of uh, six, six characters including a pangolin as they try to navigate their way through uh, lockdown conditions in, in Hong Kong and Ireland. Um, and uh, I suppose the one of the main uh, moments in the novel is where two of the characters, a district councillor and a local Hong Kong academic, uh, break the rules of their quarantine, come together in this kind of uh, passionate moment and uh, and then kind of rediscover something about themselves and the nature of their own lives um, in this experience and also through what lockdown has taught them about themselves as well. Right. I can't help but uh, notice <laughs> that uh, one of the three narrators in your book is an Irish professor yes. from uh, the Chinese university. And also a part of the story, like you mentioned, is set in the city of Cork in Ireland. And that's your hometown, isn't it? Yes. So you could be you could be excused for uh, finding uh, something autobiographical in this novel. And that is very likely uh, to, to be the case, but I should say that it's only based on uh, it's only based on factual events. And uh, one of the things I do I do really enjoy doing as a first time published nov- novelist is kind of taking readers to the cusp of believability, where they expect a lot of this to be to be true, and then you kind of push it beyond that, and the reader's never sure where fact and fiction actually begin and end. And that's something I enjoyed doing, you know, after the event, actually, when I was when I was writing this novel. So is a lot of your work uh, inspired by real life experience? Uh, well, I'm actually, first and foremost, obviously an academic. So, you know, I've published a lot of academic books. This was the first uh, novel I had published. Um, but I have been involved in the local creative writing scene and the poetry scene. And the works that I have written and published in, in the poetic scene in, in Hong Kong have definitely been involved and have drawn from my personal experiences in Hong Kong. I think as a writer, you have to draw from, you know, the kind of the, the gritty real life uh, events that you are engaged in on a day to day level. And um, yeah, I've always I've always done that. But as I say, you, you kind of push it then beyond, um, I suppose, the bounds of believability sometimes into a, a kind of an imaginative realm. And that's where it gets um, both interesting for a reader and hopefully interesting for uh, the author as well as he's writing. 
And uh, like you uh, just mentioned, uh, you've written many other books before this this one, Lockdown Lovers, but but they were very different, weren't they? Uh, yeah. can, can you tell me a bit about them? Yes. Uh, well, I've I've uh, I've published a lot of academic books, probably fourteen. This is my fifteenth book, and the reason you publish so much as an academic is because you have to. Uh, but I all, I've always told my students and I've always told my colleagues that if you only do it for, let's say, uh, promotion or for advancement, then the book means nothing to you. So I, I always have a, a strong personal conviction for writing all the books that I have written. But I must say they have been academic, although recently, for example, the last book I published before this was called uh, Cloneliness. And it was an examination of, of, of loneliness in various writers, uh, you know, in various traditions. And I did find myself getting a bit creative in that as well, in terms of how you express the ideas. So I do think that even though, uh, you know, novels and academic writing are quite distinct, quite different genres, there is room for suggesting that they borrow heavily from each other as well. So um, <clears throat> what inspired you to make uh, this leap from uh, writing more academic books to uh, writing a novel like uh, Lockdown Lovers? Yes, yeah, a very good question, Janice. I, I was, like all of us, I found myself in a very strange situation at the beginning of 2020, obviously, yes. At the start of 2020, you know, we, we all suddenly were in this world where everything was locked down. We had to deal with ideas such as social distancing, we couldn't interact with colleagues as much as we as we had done previously. We couldn't even teach. So you get to the point where you, you wonder in a kind of existential way, what is my role? What, what, what am I, how am I contributing to society? And that affected my research. And I felt that I couldn't do academic research in, in a way I wanted to. So I said, um, I believe the value of research lies in documenting what's happening in your society. So I said, why not write about it in a creative way? So I decided to... Um, visit my local uh, Kung, um McDonald's where I was living at the time to take a, a little notebook with me and to record my thoughts, the experiences of uh, people around me, uh, descriptions of the environment. Um, in this notebook on a day-to-day -day, uh, level uh, and then to kind of make that into a novel. And I should say this also was coming out of a lot of personal changes in my life. I was a father for the first time I had a two-year-old son. He was one at the time. And um, I had very little time to do research. So I said, if I could get these little moments of time in the morning and write creatively about what was going on in my society, it might have some meaning for people in Hong Kong. So then that developed into, into this novel. And uh, what do you want people to feel after reading uh, uh, your book, Lockdown Lovers? Well, first of all, if they read it, that would be a, a plus, uh, because obviously it's, it's difficult to... We can't expect our students to buy novels and read them because they're long, and they don't write, like reading long things. But if they do read it, I would like them to try and understand, like I was trying to understand, how we come to terms with this new set of circumstances. I told the editor when I was writing this book that I did it because I believe our students are struggling to understand the confines and the reality of this new era, the COVID era. And I said, if one person can actually get something from this book in terms of understanding better how this moment has arisen, how it relates to other uh, kind of events in our lives, other relationships, other things that we're engaged with, then that's, that's a bonus and a real benefit. And... Um, I hope I've achieved that purpose.
And that was Michael O'Sullivan chatting with Janice Wong on Thursday's 123 show. And Michael will be attending an event at the Literary Festival called Writing Through Difficult Times tomorrow, along with other authors. You can check out more information at the Hong Kong International Literary Festival website, which is festival.org.hk. Now let's turn to Wednesday's back chat. Researchers from the University of Hong Kong said that hepatitis C screening program targeting a high-risk group has proved highly effective and will cut transmission of the disease. Hosts Jim Gould and Anna Fenton talked to Dr. Loie Mack, who's a clinical assistant professor from the Department of Medicine from the University of Hong Kong, about her study results. We aimed to identify subjects with high risk of hepatitis C virus infection in the community and uh, once identified, they will be linked to care into our research clinic and they would be assessed um, for eligibility for highly effective directly acting antiviral therapy. So um, we formed an outreach team and we uh, co- collaborate with the non-governmental organization partners uh, who run the uh, drug rehabilitation centers in halfway house and we had our visits to the outreach, uh, in, in the outreach uh, visits to the uh, halfway house, and we performed on-site health education talks. And afterwards, we will perform point-of-care tests for the subjects for antibody to hepatitis C virus. And once confirmed positive, we will draw blood from their veins, and we'll um, collect the blood to check for hepatitis C virus RNA. And after confirmation of the viral carriage, they will be invited to attend our clinic for assessment and also evaluation for treatment. So um, am I reading between the lines that you're saying that high-risk people are among the substance abuse users of the population who might be sharing needles? Yes, um, uh, we uh, identified uh, a few groups uh, having high risk for hep C. So uh, um, those subjects who shared needles for drug injection, as well as subjects who have um, previous history of substance abuse, or previous history of prison uh, imprisonment. And we also have other high-risk groups, such as people living with human immunodeficiency virus and men who have sex with men, as well as people who were transfused with blood products that were contaminated. Why would uh, people who'd been in prison be among a high-risk group? Because um, uh, some of the prison inmates, they may be uh, um, put to jail because of drug trafficking. and. Um, uh, also, uh, the hepatitis C virus is actually transmitted by percutaneous roots, and it could be transmitted via body fluid, um, such as uh, blood or uh, some um, uh, any any kind of body secretion. So sometimes, when subjects uh, were shared sharing their uh, toothbrush or even shaves, then they can easily get infected by the virus. So it's quite an infectious uh, virus. Then hepatitis C is it quite easy to pass on. Um, easily transmitted um, by percutaneous routes. So uh, uh, apart from needle sharing, uh, also sexual contact. And um, some of the subjects also got the infection from their mother during the birth process. Mm. Mm. So what's the incidence of hospital infections here? Because just personally, my father contracted hep C in hospital having a triple heart bypass in London. So what are the levels for hospital transmissions in Hong Kong? So um, the, for hospitalised subjects, actually, um, the background rate of hepatitis C virus infection is not very high. In Hong Kong, um, the prevalence of hep C in the general population is only 0.3%. And for hospitalized subjects, the prevalence rate is about 0.8%, also uh, relatively low. So that's why we are not um, 
performing population-based screening, but instead we identify high-risk groups for the microelimination approach. So how does that compare in terms of numbers with Hep A and Hep B? So for Hep A, our seroprevalence rate is, is much higher, but for Hep A, it's uh, usually a self-limiting infection, and um, it will not lead to chronic infection. So the implications are quite different compared to Hep C. For Hep C subjects, um, they, if, if they do not seek treatment, the Hep C virus can lead to chronic liver inflammation, liver cirrhosis, or even liver cancer. Mm-hmm. So um, even if, even though Hep C is much less common than Hep A, the implication of Hep C is much more significant to the healthcare system and also to the community. And Hep B, because many Asian people are carriers of Hep B, aren't they? Yes, indeed. Um, so Hep B in our community, uh, the prevalence rate is 7.8%, um, but uh, relatively uh, for Hep C it's less common. But um, um, the preference rate among high-risk groups is very high. Like in our project, we identified that um, more than 70% of the screened subjects were actually positive for the hepatitis C virus. So are you testing for B and C since there's a, a common high risk factor there with intravenous drug users and blood? Uh, yes, um, that's why well, uh, these, um, these subjects were, uh, uh, we were deemed to be high risk for having hepatitis C virus infection. And if they are confirmed to have hep C, we will also screen for concomitant hep B and also HIV as well. Right. So your team has carried out this uh, screening exercise targeting at high-risk groups. Um, was there any sort of similar exercise done before that? Uh, yes, as far as I know, um, uh, the uh, Chinese University of Hong Kong, uh, their liver team also conducted a similar exercise. Um, the, um, the, the similarity is uh, we also target uh, high-risk groups and we collaborate with uh, NGOs and we would uh, link the confirmed subjects to uh, the respective units for further evaluation for treatment. But the differences are um, that we also expand our uh, high-risk groups to people um, with history of substance abuse and also those uh, with previous uh, imprisonment. And um, the, another difference is uh, we perform um, health education talk, point-of-care testing, and um, blood taking at the same visit so that we could um, shorten the uh, workup process and uh, hopefully can um, reduce the dropout rates and improve the treatment adherence. Do you find people are willing to collaborate and cooperate with this kind of testing? Because it's quite invasive, isn't it? Uh, well, uh, in fact, the, um, the test itself uh, was uh, a very simple uh, finger prick test, similar to checking the blood glucose by the, um, by, by the uh, needle, by the, by the um, simple needle equipment. So the um, point-of-care test takes about 20 minutes. Uh, after taking one drop of blood from the fingertip, we can um, wait for the results, and within 20 minutes we will know that whether the subject is uh, previously exposed to hepatitis C virus. And then blood taking itself, uh, it's, uh, in fact, it wasn't, uh, it's not considered to be very invasive, but um, to be frank, it's uh, not easy to collect blood from these subjects because uh, most of the time their blood vessels are actually quite difficult to be identified. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, But um, luckily our research team are quite, um, they have very professional blood taking skills. So um, we, so far we only failed blood taking in one of the subjects among the 213 subjects that we screened. So is there any regular screening exercise carried out by the health authorities? Uh, so the health authority uh, uh, has uh, regular uh, 
now actually has doing lookback program for other high risk groups uh, like those patients uh, who need the hemodialysis. They they are also at high risk of Hep C, and also um, uh, subjects who require regular blood transfusion, such as uh, hemophilia patients or thalassemia patients. Um, we have uh, lookback programs to identify these subjects for uh, uh, evaluation for treatment. But um, and also for HIV, um, people living with HIV, they also receive um, screening for Hep C in the HIV treatment centers. So leaving uh, the the other high risk groups uh, without regular access to healthcare are those who share needles and uh, people who uh, also have history history of substance abuse. And is there an improved prognosis if you can intervene on people early with the screening? Yes, uh, definitely. Um, because uh, if they do not seek medical attention early, the hepatitis C virus uh, can progressively lead to liver damage and uh, it would take about um, two decades for the um, virus to cause liver cirrhosis or liver cancer. So if identified early um, the, uh, and, and get treatment um, early, then the virus can be completely eradicated from the liver and so that we can halt the disease progression. Because in the early stages, uh, it's largely asymptomatic, uh, is that right? Yes, yes, mm. correct. So mm. uh, subjects are usually unaware of the infection, even if they have chronic carriage. Uh, yesterday uh, in our, so actually in our area sharing, uh, one of the subjects um, uh, said that he actually had the infection for more than 10 years, but he didn't have any symptoms. So uh, if, if you did have hepatitis C, uh, at what stage would you become aware of symptoms? So uh, it would be um, quite late if uh, the subject develops any symptoms such as uh, yellowing of the skin, abdominal distension, poor appetite. These would signify um, already quite advanced liver disease. And that was Dr. Loey Mack from the University of Hong Kong speaking on Wednesday's Backchat. On Radio 3, we love covering topics to do with the environment and sustainability. So on Tuesday's Morning Brew, Phil Whelan and Marin Pierce spoke with Ashley Bang from ADM Capital Foundation to talk about the impacts of climate change and overfishing on Hong Kong's seafood industry. Ashley starts by talking about their latest report, which is called Sink or Swim. This is a piece of research that uh, covers a really relatively understudied topic on a regional level that pertains to the oceans in Asia and how it affects the millions of consumers and billions of US dollars in economic value that really relies on the seafood that we are uh, taking from these oceans. And so our piece of research looks at how climate change and also our fishing intensity, that is how much fish we're taking from the oceans, Mm -hmm. will impact aspects of the ecology, all the way to economics. And that kind of research of putting together climate change, people might be thinking, well, how's climate change going to impact on fish stocks? So give us a, uh, you know, the brief two sentences on what goes on that causes climate change to have an impact on fish. And we're talking about ocean fish, not river fish for this topic today, aren't we? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so climate change is a bit of a hot topic right now, no pun intended. Um, But, you know, we have a lot of uh, nations looking to uh, really address this issue on a global level. But uh, on a regional level here in Hong Kong, uh, the East China Sea and the South China Sea are are where we source a lot of the 
imported seafood um, in Hong Kong's markets. And also these regions are experiencing a rate of warming that's faster than other other oceans in the world. And so uh, the fact that we really rely so heaven, heavily on the, the fish that we take from these oceans and the fact that they are being jeopardized by this incredible rate of warming is really concerning for us. Can I be the first person this morning to mention Seaspiracy? Alice, uh, um, Ashley, is this in your, in your ballpark? Yeah, definitely. So the report covers not only um, the pure biology of how fish are affected by climate change yeah. and the degradation of the marine habitats that they inhabit, um, but also aspects of aquaculture and overfishing and how our our practices are accelerating this degradation and overfishing of our marine resources. Ashley, you mentioned in there the marine resource in the report looking at East China Sea. I had no idea where that ran from or what it went to and South China Sea. And so seeing the maps that are in um, that uh, hopefully we're sharing on Facebook Live at the moment as well. But basically it's the East China Sea, the way I was describing it is the water from Taiwan up to Japan to Korea and across to the mainland China. And that's South correct. China Sea, I was surprised at actually how far south that went. So that's the Taiwan, Philippines, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam. But it cuts off the little bit in the bay there going up to Thailand and Cambodia. So it's a big yeah. chunk of water. Absolutely. So these are considered uh, what are known as large marine ecosystems. Uh, and there are 66 of them across the world. But proportionately, the East China Sea and South China Sea uh, really support a huge amount of um, ec fisheries economies. And as you can see, they encompass not only East Asia, but Southeast Asia. And you can imagine millions of livelihoods really depend on these oceans, including Right. Us. <laughs> so so the, the report, what was the key finding? And give us a snow, because we talked about, oh, no, we talked about the climate change. Fishing methods, the changes in fishing methods, a little bit of background on the fishing methods, then you can kind of link those two together in the report, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason why this report is so exciting and so important is that if you think about it, the fish in our oceans are a shared resource. They don't really know whether they're in Vietnamese waters or, you know, Thai waters or Singaporean waters. Mm. And so we have to be studying them on a regional level because of how uh, the oceans are shared across the region. And so what we've done uh, is, is really produced uh, a piece of research that allows us to look forward and, and consider under severe climate change scenarios, under mild climate change scenarios, how is that going to impact the fish and our economies accordingly. Um, and so we really, we looked until the end of the century, which sounds like a long way away, but really you don't have to look very far to see that a lot of our fish are going to be depleted. Um, our, our fish stocks are going to be depleted if we uh, continue in this accelerated rate of uh, exploitation of these resources. Uh, however, we can show that uh, we project that if we kind of cut back and, and um, reduce our fishing intensity by a little bit, then we can really enjoy uh, a very sustainable usage of these resources for many generations to come. So the target audience for this report is mm -hmm. more academic, more government, or is it people on the street? 
Well, so that's a great question because this originated as a highly academic piece of research from, produced by scientists at the University of British Columbia. They're top-notch fishery scientists. And we really wanted this research, which is so groundbreaking, to be uh, to be palatable and accessible to, um, you know, the, the average seafood consumer, seafood lover, as well as policymakers who have uh, of the who are in the position to kind of uh, tweak the way that we manage our coastal resources and fisheries resources. So that is the hope that people who are reading this, anyone who is, uh, you know, uh, a consumer of seafood can hopefully find something to take away from this report. Whilst we have a moment, let me invite you once again. Join us on Facebook Live if you want to see some great pictures that Ashley's given us. Morning Brewers, our page, got a few people there watching already. Let's get into some of the pictures, shall we, guys, because they are um, fascinating, moving and brilliantly shot. Sure. So, Ashley, I think the question that came up or the shock that came up when I quickly read the executive summary for this report mm -hmm. was this whole use of fish for feeding other fish and catching these juvenile fish going through. And the Hong Kong trawling ban is probably one of the examples where we saw people trawling for fish that they're really just catching it to feed it to aquaculture. So some of these photos you got right. coming up, but is, is, is going to be a small fish for people looking online. These are all baby juveniles. But what is the, the, the issue with using fish to feed fish? Yeah, totally. So there is a bit of a misconception, I think, with the rise of the aquaculture industry. A lot of us think that, you know, if our fish are farmed, that's better because we're not taking from wild uh, fish populations. However, the side that isn't revealed or, or talked about as much is that when you're farming fish and the majority of the fish that we're farming are carnivorous and require a certain amount of protein in their diet, we actually have to feed those fish with other fish. And so as we, as the aquaculture industry grows, the demand for what's known as feed grade fish uh, to produce this fish meal is, is growing as well. And what happens is now, instead of a lot of the commercial fishers focusing on, okay, let me just catch only groupers because that's what I'm gonna sell on the, on the market, at the fish markets, uh, instead, it looks like what's more profitable at the moment is to take my net and just catch as many different things as possible because it doesn't matter what's in there. Ultimately, I'm going to grind it up and use it for fish meal to feed the farmed fish. And what happens is you're taking out uh, in that sort of indiscriminate quantity over quality type fishing practice, you're, you're catching juveniles of important and important and rare species. You're taking out species that might have some sort of specific conservation status. And that is kind of the danger here where we're taking this approach um, to support the aquaculture industry. And it's not to say that the aquaculture industry is bad or evil or anything like that. It's just this is kind of an issue that few people, I think, are aware of as consumers. And so choosing to consume farmed fish sometimes actually creates even more economic and also ecological inefficiencies as opposed to directly buying fish uh, that mm. are caught for marketable consumption. And that was Ashley Bang from ADM Capital Foundation chatting with Marin Pierce and Phil Whelan on Tuesday's Morning Brew. 
And now, finally, let me leave you with some good old-fashioned music entertainment. Monday's Afternoon Drive with Steve James. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. Until next week. If I can do it, you can do it. Five, six, seven a.m. Monday afternoon drive. Radio three. Oh, oh, this is so good. It just has to be fattening. Okay, I want to acknowledge a birthday today, but this is a little bit unusual. Um, in that, uh, born this day, nineteen twenty-seven, Patty Page. Google her, kids. American singer of uh, pop and uh, country music. One of her most famous tunes, well, she recorded four U.S. number one hits, including Tennessee Waltz and the novelty record, How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? Now, that's a record that I've seen constantly on Hong Kong compilation albums over the years. You'll have some classic rock and roll numbers in there, golden oldies, all lovely, and then How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? Uh, Paige first uh, recorded uh, a single, her hit single was Confess, in 1947, uh, because of a strike, the background singers were not available to provide harmony vocals for the song. So instead, Paige decided to overdub her own background harmonies, and she became the first pop artist to do that, to overdub her vocals onto a, onto a song. She passed away on the 1st of January in 2013 at the age of 85. But one thing I learned specifically from vintage chart toppers on a Sunday morning is that Patty Page was a fabulous jazz singer. Here I go again I hear those trumpets blow again All aglow again Taking a chance on love Here I slide again About to take that ride again I'm starry-eyed again Taking a chance on love Thought that cards were a frame of I never would try Now I'm taking the game up And the ace of hearts is high Things are mending now I see a rainbow blending now Well, have I 